Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. And the words to which I would like to draw your attention to this morning can be found in the book of Philippians, chapter 3, the first 11 verses. As we said on Friday, Good Friday, we are gospel people, which means that we are cross people, but it also means that we are resurrection people. We're identified as resurrected, raised people. And so as we think about Christ's resurrection, we think about something, an event in history that plays a crucial and significant part in our own identity, how we think about ourselves. Who am I? Perhaps one of the greatest and biggest questions that we can ask ourselves in our lives. And with the resurrection... Christ infuses hope to our identity and life. So would you stand with me this morning as we read from the book of Philippians chapter 3, the first 11 verses. And after I read verse 11, I will say, this is the word of the, God, this is the, word of the Lord, and together we will say, thanks be to God. Hear the word of the Lord. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection 
and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. He who has ears, O Lord, let him hear what your spirit would say to us, your church. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. The Christian life is a life of paradoxes. What is a paradox? It's a statement that is seemingly absurd or self-contradicting, but when investigated and explained, may prove to be true. It is taking that which seems to be contradicting, things that contradict, that are contrasted to one another, that are supposed to be opposed to one another, but you bring them together and you say, these actually go together. When separate, they may have certain truth. Something that is hot to the touch and something that is cold to the touch, but for them to be hot and cold to the touch at the same time appears to be contradicting. When brought together, it can appear to be false on the face of it. And paradoxes, teach us that there are two different lands that you could live in. You can live in the land of either or. Something is either this or it's that. Living in the land of either or, everything is very black and white. It is very strict. Everything fits in its nice little box. It's very neat and very tidy. And if truth be told, we like it that way. It makes life easier. It makes us feel like we can control life, that we have some power, and that everything appears to be simplified. But there is another land, the land of both and. And it is a land that is not so neat and not so tidy for some of us. It's a land where sometimes things don't make sense. How can it be both and? Why isn't everything in its nice and neat little box? Why isn't it so black and white? Why isn't it so simple? But the Christian life is a life of paradoxes, the life of both and, because these paradoxes are true and it leads to wonder and amazement, and awe, and praise, and glory. Paradoxes are meant to jolt us out of depending upon ourselves and our own reasoning, jolt us out of living by sight, jolt us out of our desire for control, and set our eyes on the incomparable God who designed the reality in which we live so that He would receive all of the glory 
The foolishness of God is wiser than man. What are some of these paradoxes? For when I am weak, then I am strong. How can that be? You're either weak or you're strong. How about this one? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. How is that possible? How can something that is foolish shame that which is perceived to be wise? Or how about this one? For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. If I'm to save my life, I'm to lose my life, how does that work? does not seem possible. Or what about this? Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. If you're dead, you're dead. How is it that you can live? The paradoxes of the Christian life given to us in the Bible produce powerful truths that resonate in our hearts. Paul uses another paradox in these verses here before us this morning. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. If you lose something, you aren't gaining. And this is something that is hard for us to understand, maybe even harder to understand as Americans or as people who live in the West. Tell this to the average American in our materialistic and consumeristic world in a me-centered age. You're going to have to lose things in order to gain things. We spend our lives trying to gain things in our lives. How much stuff do you have in your house or your apartment, the place where you live? If you have children, you even gain more things, more stuff. How much stuff do you have? We would think, if I lose something, it is not gain. That is loss. Loss is loss. Loss means take something away. It means the cup the bank account, the refrigerator are all being drained. We understand the idea of loss. We don't have what we once had, we have less. And having less for so many people does not produce the good life. Having less does not get us ahead. This brings us to another very important question this morning. How do you know that you are advancing or progressing in your life? There is something in us, I would dare say, 
that desires to move ahead, to move forward, to progress, to advance. We don't want to be where we were 20 years ago or 10 years ago or five years ago or even one year ago for that matter. We want to be improving, making progress. The question is, how do you know if you are making progress in this life? Are you advancing if you have more in your bank account? If you have more stuff, if you have a better job, if you have a bigger house, if you have more kids, if more people like you, if you feel happy, if you feel content, if everything in your life is going exactly the way that you want it to go, what measurement, what metric do you use to determine if you are progressing or getting ahead in this life? Philippians 3, however, is not about progressing in that direction. It deals with a far more fundamental and necessary question. Is your life advancing with God? Have you made progress with Him? It is a question of getting ahead in your spiritual life. Are you at peace with God? Has there been any progress in that direction? And the answer to that question diverges into two very different directions. And there are two and only two directions. And these two directions are diametrically opposed to one another. That is, they cannot go together. They cannot be mixed. They are like oil and water. One direction, Paul warns his reader with very strong warning language. You see that in verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Who are these people? They are those who believe in external rituals and external activity and external achievements, and they believe that these things will save them and get them to God and help them progress and advance in their spiritual life. Would we take a moment and just look at these words in verse 2? Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Aren't those very strong words? Who would you say those words about? Who would you say those words to? Paul, are we supposed to supposed to love everyone? That doesn't sound very loving, does it? If you're interested in this more, here's a homework assignment. Read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Look at the words of Jesus and look at some of the strongest language that he uses and who does he use that against? He uses that against those who are self-righteous. He uses that against those who maybe we would put this in our day's language, who believe in themselves. They trust in themselves. 
They put confidence in their own flesh. They believe it's what I do. I am going to progress and advance in my spiritual life, and it's about what I do. I'm going to depend upon my own external rituals, spiritual activity, and all of this self, all of this stuff is going to make me look better in God's eyes. It's pride. It's self-reliance. It's someone who has no need for God as a source of good, goodness and truth in their lives. They can do it on their own. It's all about the externals of those who believe they have what they need to earn God's favor. It is those who pat themselves on their back for what they have done in order to advance their spiritual life, their own power and strength and wisdom. And isn't, that, isn't there something in us that also recoils at that? We recoil at those who are self-righteous. We recoil at those who are holier than thou. Paul says, beware of these people. They are not helpful in your life. They will not help you advance. They will not lead you in the right direction. And this is where we need to do some self-reflection. We are not self-righteous people. We are people who realize that we cannot get ahead and make our own way to God. We cannot be like these people who think that they have it all together and that they are, have no need of anything else. And what happens to these kind of people? Saying they see, they really are blind. This direction, this answer to what gets them ahead in their spiritual life does not make them at peace with God. These are people who honor God with their lips, but their heart is far from Him. In vain do they worship Him, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. They claim to be people of God, but they are imposters and posers and pretenders. What does it say here? The real people of God Verse 3, for we are the circumcision. That is, we are the real people of God. And how do you know those people? We worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. That idea, putting no confidence in the flesh, goes against man's sinful nature in every way. Our sinful nature screams at us, put confidence in me. I can do it. I'm really good at the core. It's not about the externals. It's not about what you do to get ahead. It's about your heart before the Lord. Paul was one who had every reason to trust in all of the externals, but he didn't. All of those externals, which some would have thought would have been gain, he counted those things as loss. It didn't get him anywhere. It didn't get him closer to God. It didn't get him ahead in life. They were of no advantage to him when it came to salvation. And here are these things. 
what Paul is giving us here is this exemplary resume. I mean, anybody would love to have Paul's resume. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, Paul says, I have more. If anyone should have been accepted by God for what he did, it should have been Paul. He was circumcised on the eighth day. So what does that say? He was born into a Jewish household, and his Jewish parents followed the law, and they had him circumcised on the eighth day. Maybe it's even in a contrast, if you go back to the book of Genesis, when the Lord told Abraham to circumcise his kin, one of the first kin that he circumcised was Ishmael. Ishmael was not circumcised on the eighth day. He was circumcised later. So Paul is saying, hey, I'm a Jew. Of the people of Israel, the people that God had chosen, the people that God had brought out of Egypt, he had redeemed with his righteous right hand. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was one of the sons of Rachel. Jacob, remember, loved Rachel more than his other, other wife, Leah. So maybe there's a sense here where he's saying, look, I'm part of the favored line. Benjamin. In fact, Israel's first king came from what line? The line of Benjamin. The person that, was, that Paul was named for. Remember Paul, his name was Saul before. Saul, the very first king of Israel, came from the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Paul is saying, I kept the law. In fact, the Pharisees had other laws to keep them from breaking the law. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, I made the church run away because of what I did. I was seeking to kill them, to imprison them. I was like, Paul says, I was like this man named Phineas in Numbers 25. The people of God began to mingle with, uh, with other people, with the Midianites, and Phineas stopped the wrath of God, stopped the plague of God by his zeal. Paul, in maybe one sense, is comparing himself to that Phineas saying, as to zeal, there's no one more zealous than me. I was a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. I had it all together. He was like the rich young ruler that Jesus met. And when he had said, which of these have you broken? The, the rich young ruler said, I've kept them all. I've kept the whole law. I've not broken anything. Paul had it all together. But he said, all that I had, all that maybe I wanted to hold on to, all that I cling to changed. In a moment, in an instant, it changed. Why? Because he met Jesus. Because he thought he had something of great value and great worth. But when he met Jesus, everything was turned upside down. 
all that he had that he thought was of so much worth and so much value meant nothing to him anymore. Jesus meant everything to him. And he says this, it was of surpassing worth to know Christ Jesus, his Lord. It was Jesus who reordered Paul's reality and showed him what really mattered. Paul saw the value of life was in knowing Christ. He had to give up, and he was willing to give up all of those external things to lose them that he might gain Christ. He would not hold on to any of them. He would not claim any of them. He would let all of those things be lost if only he had Christ, if only he gained Christ. And I love how Paul puts it here. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's what it was all about, knowing Christ. And look at how he, how he says this here. Verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted, look at that word, I counted as lost for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Do you see what Paul has done? He says, there was a time when I met Christ and all of a sudden everything changed in an instant and all those things that I thought were of great gain became worthless. I counted them as loss in the past. But guess what? That wasn't enough and that wasn't it and that wasn't the rest of the story. The end of the story is this. I count everything as loss now still in the present. Paul is saying, this is not something that just happened years ago. This is something I still wrestle with and I still struggle with. And daily, daily, I have to kill my self-righteousness. What does that mean? Well, doesn't it mean that then every day you have to put before yourself how worthy Christ is? How else are you going to do that? Knowing Christ is not merely knowing about Christ. It's an intimate knowledge of believing Jesus, of putting one's faith in Jesus, of embracing Jesus, who he is and what he has done. Do you know Christ in that way? And maybe here it's, where it could be a little scary. Because in order to know Christ the way that Paul is describing, you have to be known by Christ. And when Christ knows you, and you understand that Christ knows you, Christ sees you as you really are. He knows you. He knows all that you've done. Christ, when he knows us, he sees everything, warts and all. Worse than that, sin and all. 
And what is to happen when Christ's penetrating gaze knows you completely? It lays you bare. (laughs) It lays you bare. And that's a good thing. It lays you bare And you say, there's nothing that I can hold on to. There's no sin. There's no self-righteousness. There's nothing that I can hold on to. I want to give all of that up. I want to forsake all of that. I want to lose all of that so that I know Christ and know his love. And so that I am identified with him. So I am united to him. So that I am living for him. Knowing Christ means that your love for him is greater than all the other loves of your life. Knowing him is of surpassing worth because it is necessary for our salvation. And so Paul says, I then am found in Christ. You recognize you have no righteousness in yourself. There is no one righteous. No, not one. There is no one that does good. No, not one. There is no one who seeks after God. Christians are those who have come to an end of themselves and acknowledge there is nothing in us to commend ourselves to God. There is nothing that we can do to gain his favor. And the beauty is that even though we cannot attain his favor, his favor came to us. His grace came to us. What we didn't deserve because of, our st- because of our sin, instead it was given to us freely. The grace and mercy and love of God came to us through Jesus Christ. And being found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. It's not about my law keeping. It's not about all the rules that I've kept. Isn't that freeing? <laughs> Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. There's a freedom that comes when you embrace that truth. But that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. So, as God gives us his grace, there is a response that is elicited out of our lives, and that response is faith. It is an embracing of Jesus Christ. We trust in him, he who merited our salvation by exchanging his life for ours. He sacrificed himself on the cross. He took upon himself our sins. He who knew no sin was made to be sin for our sake. And taking our sin upon himself, Jesus bore the wrath and judgment of God. Jesus received the wages for our sin, the wage which is death. But Jesus did not stay dead. On the third day, he rose again. His resurrection is a vindication that his sacrifice was the perfect sacrifice and the only sacrifice that we ever need. If Jesus stayed dead in the tomb, that sacrifice would not be sufficient for anybody. 
if Jesus Christ stayed in the tomb, we would still be dead in our sins and lost without hope. If Jesus stayed in the tomb, there'd be no reason for us to get together this Sunday or any other Sunday. But when he had made perfect atonement for our sins, God raised him from the dead. Through his death and resurrection, Jesus reconciles us to God, all those who put their faith and trust in him. And now we are clothed with Christ's righteousness. Now we stand as those innocent before the throne of God, not based on what we have done to clean ourselves up, but based on what Christ has done so that we can be at peace with God. This is the righteousness that depends on faith. We believe in him. We receive his righteousness. Knowing Christ means we are those who have been saved by faith and by faith alone. It's the good news of the gospel. But that's not all. Knowing Christ also holds transformative power in the life of the Christian. So knowing Christ holds salvific power, saving power, but knowing Christ also holds transformative power in the life of all Christians. And this is something that is common for all believers. And you see it here in verse 10, that I may know him. What underlies Paul's statement here is this intense and unstoppable desire to know Christ. Didn't Paul already know Christ? Yes. But whatever Paul knew of Christ, or however Paul had already experienced Christ, and think about it, Paul was converted on the road to Damascus when a bright light shone around him. He fell to the ground, and Jesus said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul, from his conversion, knew Jesus in a magnificent and supernatural way, unlike most people had known. And yet, what does Paul say? That wasn't enough. I want to know him more. That I may know him still more and more and more. Nothing will get in his way. Nothing will stop him. Nothing will deter his heart and his mind and his soul to know Christ more. And that should be us, brothers and sisters. We desire to know Christ more. Do we know him? Yes. Do we want to know him more? Definitely. This serves as the purpose for why... Paul and all Christians are able to count all of those external advantages as rubbish, as dung, as nothing to hold on to. We are willing to suffer the loss of all things. Are you willing to say that? I am willing to suffer the loss of all things. All that might make me look good. 
all that might give me a good reputation, all that might make me get ahead in this world, all that I might use to commend myself to others, all that I might use to my advantage, I'm willing to suffer the loss of all things. Why? So that I can know Christ and know the power of his resurrection. To know Christ is to know the power of his resurrection. Perhaps this goes without saying, but just to be clear, in order to know the power of Christ's resurrection, there had to be a real resurrection. Jesus Christ was raised bodily from the dead on the third day. Jesus rose from the dead, never to die again. For Christ to rise from the dead as a historical reality means there had to be power used. Resurrection is not a normal phenomena. It is supernatural. And so supernatural divine power was manifested to resurrect Christ. The scriptures clearly state God raised him from the dead. It is at the heart of what we believe. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. So the question is, how do we know the power of Christ's resurrection? How do we experience it? Well, we experience the power of Christ's resurrection through Christ's sovereign rule. Christ rose again from the dead. He appeared to his followers for 40 days, and then he ascended into heaven. Now he is seated at the Father's right hand. And in his continued ministry, he is bringing all of God's enemies under his feet, under his subjection, under his rule. He is interceding for his own, his saints. How is he able to do all of these things? Because of his resurrection power. His resurrection power has broken the power of sin in our lives and imparted new life to our hearts. So now we are able to obey. Do you think about that? That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And the power of his resurrection is so powerful that it breaks the dominion of sin in my life. So now I am able to obey God. Would we ever consider that our disobedience belittles his resurrection power. How little and insignificant do we attempt to make the resurrection when we disobey the risen Lord? So we know the power of his resurrection through his rule. We also know the power of his resurrection through his indwelling spirit that lives in us. Romans 8 verse 11 says this, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The spirit, the Holy Spirit is called there the spirit of Christ. And Paul says in Romans 8, that spirit dwells in you, lives in you. 
The Spirit is the one who applies Christ's saving work to our hearts and lives. It's the Spirit who not only regenerates us and makes us new, but it's also the Spirit who sanctifies us. We don't begin the Christian faith by the Spirit and then continue on by the power of our flesh. We are continually sanctified by the work and the power of the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead in our lives to conform us more and more into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. Is that a prayer of yours? Do you pray, make me more like Jesus? Be careful what you pray for. Because what's the next thing? To know Christ is to share in his sufferings. If I were to guess this morning, this is the part that we would like to skip. Resurrection power? Yeah, give me that. I want some power in my life. But sufferings? Who would like to share in Christ's sufferings. How long is that line? But this again is how we become like Christ. This idea of sharing in Christ's sufferings could also be said fellowshipping in Christ's sufferings. You willing to fellowship with Christ's sufferings? Partake in them? How do we suffer? Well, we become like him in his death. That means we have to be those who are willing to sacrifice ourselves. In a sense, kill ourself, die to ourself. God wants you to become like Christ in his death. And that's going to mean suffering. God so uses suffering in our lives to put our sinful flesh to death. Sharing in Christ's sufferings is a way for us to be transformed. Paul sees it as a value to share in Christ's sufferings. Suffering is not for no reason. It's not purposeless. This is where you remember that the slight momentary affliction that you are experiencing now is preparing you for the eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. This is where you can rejoice in your suffering because suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. It's absolutely necessary that we become like Christ in his death, because that is the only way forward toward resurrection. In a world where people suffer for no reason and no purpose, the Christian suffers with great reason and great purpose because there is hope 
for a future. Isn't this the end, verse 11? That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the J curve. This is another paradox. In order to go up, you have to go down. You have to die first. You have to become like him in his death. The only way forward is to go down, to die, in order that you might go up, that is, to be resurrected. This is the hope of the Christian, that even though our bodies might die physically, that one day we will again rise again from the dead. Our Savior has risen bodily from the dead, and so all those who believe in him will one day on the day of Christ's return, will rise bodily to everlasting life. Knowing Christ is transformative and it produces in us a certainty of the future. This is the difference between the Christian and the world system. The world system has no certainty to offer. The Christian has this certainty. There is a resurrection of everlasting life that is coming, that has been promised. And Paul says, I want to make sure that I'm a part of that resurrection. I want to make sure that that is my hope. We are those who put no confidence in our flesh now for salvation, but we have every reason for confidence that we will one day be resurrected and glorified in perfected bodies on the last day. So great is this confidence, so great is this hope, that it's a hope beyond all comparison. That Paul says, I don't care if I have to suffer and become like Christ in his death. I want the resurrection from the dead at the end. Paul says, Everything that I have to go through now is worth it. Gloriously worth it in the end. Let's pray. Father, may your word have its perfect work in us today. Thank you for the resurrection and the resurrection power that we experience as believers today. Father, if there's anyone here who does not know Christ, know this resurrection power, does not share in Christ's sufferings, becoming like him in his death, Father, I pray that today they would repent of their sin, that they would put their faith and trust in Jesus and in Jesus alone to save them and that they would know the forgiveness of sin that he alone can give, that they would know the hope of a future, a future that's not dominated by the thought of death as the final step, but the thought of resurrection as the final step. The thought of eternal glory with you forever and ever as the hope to which they hold on to is that for which they long for. Oh Father, make us who do know Christ to be more like Christ. May we know His resurrection power and may we become 
like him in his death as we share in his sufferings, that by any means possible, we may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let us cast off all sin that would cling to us and weigh us down and run this race with endurance, looking to Jesus, the author, the perfecter of our faith. May he be glorified, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.